see how this is not too loud today? I worked on my technical skills. Oh, it's not, it's not. It needs to be loud because I need energy. Okay. Oh. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and welcome <laughs> to Plants and Pipettes, where we talk about plants and how they work. Yeah, and how we use pipettes to understand them better. The pipettes don't usually come into it very much, honestly. No, it's not no. a big. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think we're disappointing a lot of our like die-hard pipette fans that are like, <laughs> finally, finally a program for me. <laughs> Just uh, all the companies like Eppendorf and like yeah. I don't know what what are the other brands. Brand is one of the brands that we use in the line. Brand, 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 and uh, uh, tuning in to listen to us talk. Yeah. And they are very disappointed because, again, week after week, we don't talk about You know what I like? I like that multi-pipette. Not the multi-channel pipette, but the one where you just, like, click multiple times and it's always giving out the same volume. That's yeah. my favorite pipette. What's your favorite pipette? We should just have a section which is called my favorite pipette. <laughs> it's, like it's, very, like it's very short-lived, isn't it? Yeah. Um, now, I had once one... It is not really my favorite. I went to a fair for, like, supplies and equipment and stuff uh, in Germany for lab stuff. And they had an ergonomic pipette and it was sort of like you know like the thrust level you have in an airplane where you have like your hand sideways and you push sort of forward and backward and you had just like sort of the top part of the handle and then the pipette was going like just straight down and so you had like this weird claw movement and they said like it's much better for your hand and I mean a regular pipette for the people who don't know it is sort of listeners if you're having problems visualizing this like Yoram is actually doing the claw hand and I still do not know what he's talking about so imagine you're holding a can of beer yeah this is how you usually hold a pipette and now imagine turning I mean, it 90... Yeah, I mean, a day much thinner, but... Okay, now you're holding it from the top. And No, no now you're sort of... I'm not turning my can that I have here now because it's full. But now turn it 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And this is how you hold the other pipette. But then, like, straight down to the bottom, there is sort of the pipette shaft with the tip on going down. So you sort of have, like, this big brick in your hand and, like, a thin piece going down. That doesn't seem even slightly helpful because you always pipette from the side so I that you can see what you're doing, right? Like, yeah. I never pipette, like, vertically. I pipette, like, at, like maybe a 30, 30 degree angle so that I can like see what I'm doing as I go across yeah. right and there you have just like this weird blob in your hand and then you sort of just do a very it, it's a really weird movement I think that's why we don't see them in the lab because it was like not a good a, idea yeah we've like perfected the pipettes it's like whenever somebody's like I've now invented a new wheel and you're like yeah but have you though like <laughs> yeah do we really need we've that we've got that shit down yeah although I did know like um, there's some pipettes which have different ways of sticking the the tips on, yeah. which is better for different things. So the normal way is like you kind of push down and you suck it up. And these are kind of like a reverse effect somehow. I don't understand physics, but it's better for when you have um, very uh, like liquids with very low density, like methanol, something mm. which like flows out of the tip very easily. It doesn't cling to itself um, very much. Yeah, they have like this direct, like a straight up plunger, right? The other thing, the others they work with, I like, get air pretty much is sucked in and out. Yeah, and they exactly. Have, like, it's more a, like a suction than a, than yeah. a, yeah. Anyway. This is not, although it's in the name, a, a pipette expert <laughs> that was podcast. The, and now we finish with the section, my favorite pipettes. And <laughs> we um, move to other things. Yeah. How, how have you been? It's been two weeks since we recorded. It's been two very long weeks for me. So I had, um, let's start, what, two weeks ago? <laughs> I think on Wednesday, a couple of weeks ago, I flew to um, York. Well, I flew to Manchester and then I went to York for a job interview there. That was on Thursday. On Friday, I had moved to Edinburgh where I had a job interview there. Um, Saturday, I flew back to Berlin. On Sunday, I flew to Lille. 
Um, well, I flew to Paris and then went to Lille, which is in the north of France on the mm. border with Belgium, where I had a four-day conference. On Thursday evening, I went back down to Paris to see a friend. Um, oh, and while I was in Lille, I had another interview over Skype for a job in Australia. Um, <laughs> International woman of the world. <laughs> and then I had a day in Larve. Le, Le Havre. Le Havre. Um, the harbor, How I think. How did you like it? It was, it was really nice, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for it me... It has a bad reputation, doesn't it? Like, what? No. I, I always heard that like Le Havre is like this sort of industrial city. By like this, It's pretty much like an industrial port with some buildings around it. It's what people told me. And when I went there like in eighth grade, so mm -hmm. over... Like roughly Let's 15, say 20 years 16 ago. years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, there it was just like a gray, rainy day and a lot of concrete is what I remember. Yeah, so it's got, I mean, it got completely demolished in the war. And then they tried to build kind of the center section up a little bit. So it's got a little bit of a modern look. Um, there's this huge like white volcano structure in the center mm. of the town. There's a lot of like um, kind of small inlet places where so the water kind of meets the city. And um, I what his name is... August Peret or something Peret I don't know how you say that he basically um, was in charge of redesigning the the kind of main apartments in the city center and he had this very nice like socialist idea that everybody should have equal access to light and oh. and like very um, practical apartments and I went into one of those apartments um, one of our joint friends recommended at Alix and it was really beautiful I mean I, I wanted to live there everything was just so like well done and clever so they have things like um You know, like all the bedrooms face the courtyards. This is just practical that you don't have the noise from the street. And then they have the center bit of the house is the the entrance and that has lowered ceilings. Um, and they said, it's like, okay, it's nice. It makes it feel cozy. But the real reason is that you can then put the heating in the ceilings instead of putting it like on the wall. So you save mm. space. So you have it above the ceiling, but you still have um, big like tall ceilings in, in the rooms that matter. And everything was just like so well thought of and practical. And this kind of... Um, this compact apartment style where everything like you you could open up the tables or you would like move something and you would find extra store i don't know it just it was really cool and it was also like i mean now it's retro as well so it was like this 50 styles inside mm. there and it was it was really beautiful and honestly just for me like i come from kind of near the sea so just like when i got off the train i smelt the sea i felt the wind from the ocean oh, yeah, i heard nice. a seagull and like even though it was mostly a port town i didn't really go to the beach it was more like like ships and stuff it just Yeah, the sea is something magical. It's <laughs> yeah. it's magical. I, 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 we talked about how great Berlin is in the past, but like it's too far away from a good sea. It's the only thing, and the, this, the closest sea is also like the freezing cold sea. Like yeah, it's the Baltic Sea, and it's not like I like the the Atlantic Ocean. Like it's it's more rough, and uh, yeah, it's just wilder. And I'm I really like being at the Atlantic coast of any country that has an Atlantic coast, <laughs> um, and. Yeah, Berlin is just too far away from that. So yeah, I'm a little bit jealous of the little trip to the sea. Yeah, and that was like after a couple of weeks of very busy moving around, I thought, okay, I just even though I, I, I again took a two-hour train to go there and then like the next day took it back, it was like once I'm there, I can just kind of relax. I, I went to a restaurant, ate seafood and just spent like an hour having lunch and then just like move like very slowly and I found a botanical garden that was very beautiful. I, I put some photos on the Instagram. Um, yeah, yeah, it was just it was it was super pleasant after all of the the job stuff. Yeah, nice, cool. Yeah. Shall we do some science stuff? Let's do some science. You've got a paper for us today, yeah? Oh, <laughs> it works. Just have to do it right. 
it's the paper of the week. Yeah, my paper of the week uh, is a paper where I want to talk about land use. Ah, the cat is doing something it's absolutely Sorry. not supposed we to do. We have a cat that's trying to go in a bassinet, which is very bad for any babies that might in the future be in the bassinet. Yeah, let's try to like... <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> Yaram um, is making some sort of like cat trapping device. I think he's like put some sheets over so that when it jumps, it will like fall into a hole and kind of be. Yeah, and there's like po- poison spikes at the bottom. It's amazing. Of it. I never knew you were such a Bear Grylls MacIver kind. <laughs> Impressive. All right. <laughs> What's want, the paper of the week? I want to talk about land use today, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the biggest issues uh, of the future, right? Like we have limited land and we're probably be- becoming more people and so we're definitely becoming more people yeah i mean i don't want to go into any like <laughs> pessimist like world war scenarios where I we mean, have a drop in population <laughs> because i really don't want that to happen at least five of my friends had babies in the last few years yeah. so very unscientifically and, and anecdotally i would say <laughs> our population is rising from my observations yes we have more people now um and so we have to answer questions like how do we use land, um, Where? how much do we want to use for agriculture, how much do we want to use re- for residential mm-hmm. uh, use. Um, we talked about reforestation in the past yeah. um, how to as combat to climate sink, crisis. Yeah, as a way to sink some carbon dioxide. And we have to produce energy still and especially when we want to move away from, from coal or other fossil fuels. Um, we have to do something else and uh, either like wind energy or solar energy or biomass, all of it requires land. Um, so the basic question is, given we only have a small amount of land, how do we choose what to yeah. put where base? And I looked up some numbers on how we are currently doing that and it is mostly for food production, um, the numbers now. Um, so 29% of the globe is covered in land and 71% of this land mass um, is habitable. Mm-hmm. And from the habitable land, 50% are used for agriculture. Um, 37% are used for forests, uh, 11% for shrubs, and only 1% of the habitable land is used uh, for urban uh, use at the moment. Um, what is also the 1% of shrubs? The 11% of, sh- of shrubs. shrubland. I guess that's like not proper forests, but still wild like savannas or tundras or stuff okay. like that, I guess. Um yeah, and then for agriculture, so half of the land we use for agriculture is like the two, th- um, no, three quarters of it are livestock, 77%. Mm. Um, and interestingly, although we use 77% of the land for livestock, only 70% of our food caloric uptake comes from meat, while um, 83% of the calories that we eat come from plants, but we grow plants only on 22, 23%. Wait, 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 83% of our calories come from plants. plants? That's global though, right? Yeah. Because my friend recently started a diet. It's not like a a losing weight diet. It's like a healthy eating diet where his doctor told him that he should be eating like 80% of his food that he eats should be vegetables. Yeah. Which I think most people don't do. I mean, think about like probably you eat quite a bit of bread. I don't think I would classify like potato or a starch like that as a vegetable either, but even like without potato, like bread and rice and pasta would be. Uh, So 80% should be vegetables as in non-starchy vegetables. That's how I would interpret it. But even if you're including starchy vegetables, like think about how often you have like a pasta meal, like we just had pasta and we literally just had pasta, bread and cheese for (laughs) starch, starch, like (laughs) carbohydrates, carbohydrates and like fat for, um, for dinner, which was great. But, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, you would have just, if you eat non-starchy vegetables, 
the calorie density of them is just so low. Well, that's also the thing. He's also incredibly thin. He's the sort of person who can't gain weight. So um, yeah. he, we were like joking that because he's quite thin and he wants to eat like healthy, so he's eating the vegetables, he would have to be just like drinking like goose fat as the other 20%. Like it should be <laughs> just to make up for just like <laughs> so, a basic turnover Yeah, so you get some calories. goose fat and you sort of stir some sugar in <laughs> until it like crystallizes and that's how it goes. Yeah, sorry. What were you saying? Land juice. <laughs> yeah, so this is just as to, to illustrate like how we're using the land at the moment and as i said like if you want to move towards sustainable energy we need more land like photovoltaics um are big in um for example in in the us in the um, dry lands where you can't grow a lot of uh, crops mm -hmm. there you can then use photovoltaics there was a big plan of putting um, solar energy in northern africa and then producing energy there and transporting it somewhere um but the, all of it requires land um then energy plants uh, obviously require land um, that we can't use to grow food. Um, and then all the wind energy that's not in the sea requires land as well. Um, so uh, this is sort of the problem, right? We have the limited amount of land and we want to make more efficient use. Mm -hmm. um, and in the paper that I want to present, it's all about like solar energy. And um, for that, I want to talk a little bit about what happens when sunlight hits the ground or hits the earth in general. Um, so when the sun hits the earth and you have some vegetation there, then you have um, the vegetation that absorbs some of the energy and turns mm -hmm. use it as biochemically. Also uh, turns uh, some of it into heat by, I mean, we have these molecular mechanisms of um, non-photochemic quenching yep. um, where... Yeah, excess energy that can't be turned into sugars is just sort of released as heat. So Dissipated, basically. Yeah. And then we have the soil itself is absorbing heat, but we also have a lot of chilling effects. We have uh, like transpiration from the plants. They transpire water and when it evaporates, it basically cools down. Basically just like plant sweating. Yeah, plant sweat. We have also the ground uh, releasing water vapor, mm -hmm. um, which cools the earth. So you have a sort of... Um, a balance of an energy influx and you but you also have some energy that's lost uh, to evaporation of water um, and uh, in contrary to that when you put um, a solar panel down um, you change the energy balance Ob obviously you still have some energy that's absorbed by the um, solar panel mm -hmm. um, and turned into electric energy but there's also a lot of heat just absorbed by the material so and the, the thing heats up the solar panel heats up um, and then releases the energy again as radia radiation energy when it's cooler. Towards, yeah, okay. So it sort of absorbs more energy overall. Um, obviously, you have some shading of the ground, but you don't have any vegetation usually. So you don't have any of the cooling effects. No, um, maybe a little bit of water evaporating from the ground, but no plants doing transpiration or anything. So overall, solar fields absorb um, or like more of the energy is retained um, under solar panels mm -hmm. uh, in, in solar fields. Um uh, and yeah, and uh, the other thing um, is that when we talk about like a sunny day, also photosynthetic plants are not too happy when it's way too hot, right? Um, there are some things, uh, I mean, maybe you have an idea what, what happens when it's just like very hot on a field and you have some plants growing there. What happens to the plants? 
they die. <laughs> I mean, it's I not mean, that they hard. Have, like, I'm not talking like... <laughs> I guess they usually have some adaptive um, mechanisms, most plants. So they like roll their leaves or put their leaves at a different angle to try and get less of um, the heat. And then if it gets too hot, they also um, have problems where they're like closing their stomata now so that they don't lose too much water. But then that basically prevents them from being able to get gases in. So the stomata are like the small holes on the leaf that like gases in and out. And when the carbon dioxide can't come in then they can't photosynthesize so this kind of shuts everything down for a bit yeah and that depending on the species happens already quite quickly um like you don't have to have a, a major excess of uh sunlight um to stress the plant already to the point that it closes all the stomata and drastically reduces its photosynthetic efficiency so mm -hmm. actually um at high noon um, with a uh, with a hot sun, it might not be that efficient for the plant. Although we might think, hey, there's a lot of light there, the plants must be very happy. But depending on the temperatures, they might uh, be very uh, inefficient. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that high light can cause uh, stress, and yep. um, like the antenna proteins um, that uh, acquire that, that that catch the light energy, they produce ROS. Um, reactive oxygen species and that can be damaging to the cell and that's why we have these quenching mechanisms mm -hmm. um, that we just talked about like the non-photochemical quenching for example that turns like this excess excitation into um, heat to uh, relieve str or, like reduces stress on the antenna um, okay so plants don't like it if it's too hot yeah don't uh, plants don't uh, like it when it's too hot and uh, photo on photovoltaics uh heat up when they when they are on a vegetation less ground mm -hmm. uh, which brings us to the simple idea now combine the two put photovoltaics and uh, plants together um, and this is what this paper is about um, and this paper they studied um, i can the, the title is agrivoltaics provide mutual benefits across the food energy water nexus in drylands it's agrivoltaics from, yeah agrivoltaics mm -hmm. um is a cool new word that they mm -hmm. i think they i don't know if they invented it but they definitely use it a lot in their paper it's in from nature sustainability um and although it is closed access and i try not to do, do any closed access papers um i found this through a very comprehensive uh, twitter sorry very comprehensive Twitter thread uh, from the first author um, where he went through some of the main figures and explained what you can see there so I sort of let it pass um, because if you are interested in it you can see the, the figures we put a link to the Twitter feed um, and to the publication um, so you can actually get a first hand explanation from the first author um, I mean that's, of the, that's the thing so um, most papers do this where when you publish something with them they give you a specific link as the author which even if your stuff is behind a paywall you can share that on social media or on your like university website and this is like supposed to be that authors can share their own stuff so yeah. it's kind of good if everybody knows about this if you're an author and somebody sends you a link don't just be like what am I going to do with this link I already have access because I'm in an institution and I, I can get through the paywall share the link that's what it's there for and it's it's literally stated on the website of of all the companies like this is for authors to share their work. This is the purpose. Yeah. I mean, he shared um, just the, the figures as images um, on individual tweets, but mm -hmm. still, um, he did a very good job. And um, But it's nature, you said. So yeah. he should have that link. He should have yeah. that accessible link. Yeah. Um, so the research that they did was performed in Arizona in the US, um, a place that's very hot, very dry, um, with a lot of sun um, sunlight there. 
And uh, a problem that they have in these hot states in the US, that water is often very scarce. So uh, water use efficiency is one of the main drivers in agricultural decisions. And often when water is uh, very scarce, um, it makes sense for farmers to turn cropland into photovoltaic land because that then they don't need water anymore um, and they can still make a profit from the land, but it reduces the amount of land that we can use for agriculture. Mm. So in this paper, they wanted to um, fight this problem by combining the two. And what they did is that they um, put the photovoltaic system on three meter high um, uh, beams, essentially, like raising the entire photovoltaic system, okay. which is usually on a ground level mm -hmm. because it's easier to construct. And then underneath... Um, the solar panels they uh, planted crops um, and then during the growth season in summer I think it was three or four months uh, from, from May uh, onwards um, they uh, compared the growth system under a photovoltaic system to just photovoltaics without any plants underneath them and to crops without any photovoltaic uh, system above mm -hmm. them okay. um, and to see just how do they perform and um, they, the, the plants that they used are the chiltepine pepper, which is um, a type eh? of capsicum. Okay. Um, it's not a very commercially important um, pepper plant, um, but it, uh, it's used as a crop and it's um, been sort of used and developed uh, or, or that they chose it here because it's a plant that uh, grows in very high areas and usually in the shade of trees and larger plants okay. you mean so, like altitudes it grows at altitude or no uh, in, it grows hot. in hot areas okay mm -hmm. um but in the shade so it seems to be a plant that might that does well in sh in the shade mm -hmm. of a photovoltaic system um, the other thing they use is a, um, a relative of that, uh, um, jalapeno peppers. Um, they are commercially very important. Um, and the other thing they use is cherry tomato. So all of them are coming from the same uh, larger family of Solanum species. Um, and uh, But yeah, two of them are commercially very important, the jalapeno and the cherry tomato, and the chiltepine pepper is um, sort of another potential crop plant or at least a plant that's adapted to growing in the shade uh yeah and uh they tested a couple of uh, of things they irrigated the the, the crops um uh, in a rate of two uh, every two days and also at uh, every one uh, every single day to compare the water use efficiency mm -hmm. um and then yeah they started looking at some of the of the data Ah, yeah, and the thing why uh, cherry tomato is used, it's pretty cool uh, in, in this experiment, is that it's a very heat-sensitive plant, and when it gets too hot, it uh, aborts the it, yeah. fruit development and doesn't really make any fruit. Um, so it's a good indicator when it gets too hot, and usually you they are not grown straight up in the field for that reason. I have had that experience on my balcony. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the first thing they obviously measured is the light intensity, right? If you shade your plants you want sure. to know how much how much you're, you're shading, shading them, them basically and the effect is quite um drastic uh so usually um the um the light intensity during um during the day peaks at around like a thousand micromole per square meter per second mm -hmm. um and and with the with the shading um they peaked at around 600 at the best but usually they stayed below the 600 value so a reduction to 40 to 60 percent of the original uh, light intensity so you might think that's probably not so great for the plants right they get it depends on what the plant's optimal light 
intensity yeah. to grow in, right? So like a Arabidopsis, like 600 is already high light, 1,000 is like going to kill it basically. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be small and purple, but tobacco can quite happily grow at like 600. So it depends on what your crop is. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that they man- measured is the difference in air temperature. Can I ask quickly, did yeah. they talk about light quality? Because you have no. like the quantity, but you also have like different um, spectrums of light. So if the light is a bit more blue or if it's a bit more yellow like or red, depending on the size, yeah. the side, and this can really affect how plants grow. So It's a very good point, but they didn't go into light quality in this. Um, I think the... The solar panels are quite opaque, so the light mm. that was seen there is sort of bounced, like indirect uh, light that probably still has the full sun spectrum, but it's a complete hypothesis at this point. Like, I don't know, like some it could be they bend differently, right? So there's yeah. like the the high intensity ones bend what less well. I think the the reds bend more easily. I cannot remember. Yeah, but yeah, they didn't go into that, but it's uh, it. Um, it would be a very interesting uh, thing to study further. I mean, that's why probably this is in nature sustainability and not in a sort of more molecular um, biology-based thing where you immediately look at like, how does the antenna protein react? They just looked at the entire plant mm-hmm. and some um, yield factors. But first for the system, they also measured the nighttime uh, maximum daytime maximum temperature. And um, during the day, it was cooler in the shade. Mm-hmm. And during the night, it was warmer because the the solar panels, they stored some of the heat and released it during the night. What are those numbers like? Um, so between zero and one degree warmer uh, at night and between uh, one and two degrees colder during the day. And difference between daytime and nighttime temperature? Because that can be really, um, that's really important for in training kind of like the circadian clock, like the, the central rhythms of the plant is they need to have a certain difference between the daytime temperature and the uh, nighttime temperature. For that, I would have to look up in in the paper but i think um yeah i mean the the difference was definitely smaller like under the solar panels the night and day um Mm. difference was definitely smaller i think it only needs to have a difference of a few degrees it doesn't have to be huge but one of the arguments again about the the climate crisis is that um the nighttime levels might increase um, more rapidly even the daytime and that will like diminish this and this could have further impacts on plant growth because they no longer have this like clear day night to tell them when to do things basically yeah here in the figure they didn't give the absolute um values of the temperatures they just gave the difference in the air temperature um so i and during day and during night so i don't know how far they are still apart Mm -hmm. but i would think that usually in even in arizona at night it gets quite cold um so i guess even with like a um, desert, i would think it would be like almost zero at night time right like it would be really really cold yeah and um the, the last thing that they measured is um, that they have a reduced vapor pressure difference um, during um, the end of the solar panels, um, which means that the air is more humid and mm-hmm. less there, so there's less drought stress. So, um, yeah, they don't dry out as quickly uh, under the solar panels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now the interesting question is, um, now they measured like yeah it's warm uh, warmer at night colder during the day it's a little bit more humid the sun, uh, the light intensity is reduced but does it help the plants yeah do the plants actually care for this and um interestingly so they measured first the co2 uptake to just measure yeah how much carbon can they fix mm-hmm. um and that was elevated for the chiltepine pepper and for the cherry tomato um mm-hmm. significantly it was slightly reduced for the jalapeno pepper so it didn't take up as much carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, then they used uh, they they assessed the daily water use efficiency. There it was like no difference for the chiltepine pepper. The um, 
uh, jalapeno was uh, much more efficient at using water uh, under the solar panels as compared to just grown in the field with no shading. Mm -hmm. And also the cherry tomato was slightly better uh, at water use. And now the big question, fruit production, yeah. how did they perform? And the chiltepin pepper almost doubled uh, or more than doubled its, its uh, production. Also did the cherry tomato. Um, and the jalapeno it was about the same. Uh, so it didn't change. It didn't change in the amount of fruit production, um, but it was much more efficient at water use. So even for that, it was like, it, it had a better uh, water use efficiency. So uh, not as much water was lost for the same uh, quantity of pr uh, fruit produced. Did they the discuss end. that? Like, did they discuss what? I mean, so my guess for them would be that jalapenos normally grow under quite high light, and therefore the light wasn't low enough, and that's why they were actually taking up less CO two because the shading was having like yeah. a negative effect. But I, I would want yeah. to know like how in an ideal greenhouse in in Netherlands somewhere, what do we grow them under? What light intensity? Uh, they didn't go into that to compare to regular growth conditions because I think usually none of these three plants are grown in the field. They're always grown sure. in greenhouses yeah. in controlled conditions. So obviously when you compare to a non-optimal growth um, on the field for these plants, the shading will uh, look better here. Um, but it was still like, if you imagine building a greenhouse and running a greenhouse, it's much more complicated than just having the shade from solar panels. Sure. And the solar panels, they don't cost energy. They bring you energy while like a greenhouse. No, no, no. I and think... That's why, um, um, yeah, but this... It I guess yeah. I would want to see like a, a so these three crops. I mean, they're they're crops, but they're still kind of um, they're not main crops. I would say so. Even like the cherry tomato, it's not like a normal tomato. It's yeah. a cherry tomato, so they're kind of niche crops or like even um, they're a bit fancy, right? I'd like to see how something like potato or wheat yeah. or rice. I mean, I don't think rice can grow in the desert, but something um, wheat it, can grow in hot temperatures. We can grow it in Australia. These kind of things, I'd be really curious about. Yeah, I mean, this is something I'm coming to to the end. How ah, how far we can uh, take the system uh, as of now. Um, so let's keep that in mind for for a bit. But it's a very important question, nonetheless. Um, so the other thing that they uh, also measured is the water retention of the soil uh, when they watered it every two days and every day. And uh, in the shade, they had less water evaporation from the soil. So they actually um, sort of the, the driest point um, during the shading uh, was still much wetter than the average of the non-shaded area. Um, so it was not wetter than when it was freshly irrigated, but it mm. retained a lot of water and they they um, didn't measure it, but they speculated to they could get uh, the watering down to even less than every second day um, and still have efficient growth, which is a major uh, um finding or a very important point for growing crops in such arid re uh, regions. Mm -hmm. uh, the big cost will be the water. Yeah. yeah. Um, so overall for the plants, this whole system is great. But what what about the solar panels? Do they care? And um, the thing about solar panels is that they uh, reduce the efficiency with rising temperatures. So mm -hmm. a very hot panel produces less power um, than a cool panel. And it already starts at 25 degrees, which is sort of the optimum for them. And every degree above 25 degrees comes at a penalty uh, of the um, of turning solar energy into electric energy. Okay. Um, so all of these plants, they do transpiration and uh, evaporation from the soil of that uh, has a cooling effect. We, we discussed that at the beginning and um, they measured that here as well. And the panels were approximately nine degrees cooler um, than the panels that had no 
vegetation growing below it. Um, and that means uh, that, it, uh, that they were more efficient, about 3% over the growth season, um, which comes down because that is just a couple of months to 1% annually. It's not great, but... Mm-hmm. Um, well, it didn't make it worse. That's good. <laughs> it didn't make it worse. Um, it made it slightly better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is now the entire system. And now I want to sort of go over like, why is it great? Uh, what is bad? And what is still unknown? So what? why it's great? Um, it produces higher yield for two of the, of the plants that they used. Um, it has in general, um, it needs less water, this growth system. And it... Uh, generates like slightly more power than just a photovoltaic system so you have a dual use of your land there you can get uh, electric energy and you can grow crops underneath them mm-hmm. um what is bad about the system is that at the moment the way they set it up it's incompatible with mechanized farming um all of these plants are mm-hmm. plants that are grown with a lot of manual labor like they're hand-picked mm-hmm. um they, I mean, you can have an automatic uh, irrigation system, but overall, it's uh, like these plants are not usually uh, harvested with, with big machines. Yeah. Like, um, Could it be set up to fit a tractor in? That's the question. Um, How high above the, the crops were the... Three meters. Three meters, okay. And then you have the poles to keep them up there. Sure. So you you would have to have a new system of like smaller machinery that can drive under these Or you panels. need to have like um, more like solid structures, like cages going over the whole thing as opposed to them yeah. all sticking individually from poles, something like this, uh, which or, is more expensive then, right? Or you could um, build them in a sort of uh, removable way that you have them up there during your growth season and for harvesting mm. you take down the solar panels uh, and then you harvest and then you pu- can put them back up again systems like that would have to ha- be developed um, but right now as as they set up the system here it doesn't work for wheat it doesn't work for for rice or potatoes or anything where you need large numbers and mechanized harvesting um, or in general like mechanized treating because also like you, you can't use uh, tractors to bring out pesticides or um, certain growth regulators and so on. All of that has to be done manually in the system. Mm. Also, the the cost of building the photovoltaic system is slightly higher because you have to put it all on stilts, essentially, um, which makes it then... Did they say how much higher it was? No, uh, they didn't go into the details of the installation cost. Um, but I just imagine like these things have to be a bit more sturdy. They have to also ca- uh, account for like winds and so on. Like mechanically it's a different thing to put a system on the ground level than to put it in three meters height mm-hmm. um and uh so currently the system relies on artificial watering um because it's in an arid hotland they yeah. don't care for rain but rain is important for crops and if you put this uh, these angled solar panels over them what happens when it rains is that like is the water um distribution in the field then uneven or not can you c- mm-hmm. account for that mm-hmm. so You'd need to add something. Yeah, there's there's a few more kind of structural elements that would have to be added to to fix all yeah. of this, right? Um, so this is sort of the bad stuff. It's a bit more complicated ov- uh, overall to 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 use and uh, requires manual labor. And now for for the unknowns, um, they they go also into that in the paper. Um, so the first question is like, how do other crops perform in the shades? Like we, yeah. we said that like. Is it just these these few like very closely related species like peppers and tomatoes um, that are uh, doing well, or is it as other pl- uh, crops as well? I mean, wh- what about salads or other things that you like don't grow at large scales? Um, another thing that is is uh, 
probably better, but they didn't measure it, is the conditions for workers. Because usually uh, when field workers have to work in on unshaded fields, they get a lot of heat and sun exposure, which is very bad for your health. Mm -hmm. um, and in the shade, it might be better for them. And so there are some, they, they suggest some further measurements. There are some indi indices that are used to describe like worker um, yeah, wealth or well-being um, at mm -hmm. work in, in the field. Then um, how do ecosystems and pollinators in, uh, react to this shading by photovoltaic system? Does it have a, an effect or not? Um, yeah, and as I said, like what happens when it rains? Um, will that lead to like runoff and you have like, mm -hmm. do you need like a, a distribution system? Do you collect the water and then use it in your irrigation? It's just, uh, it's unclear. Um, but they go into, in the study, they say, or they address a lot of these things and say like, we just don't know yet. Like they don't go into the rain, but the other things they discuss and say like, we need further experiments and more time to develop this. Um, but until then, I find this is a very cool model system. To and just how, how much of, at the very start, you said there was a certain amount of um, land that we're not really using for anything for crops. It's kind of the more, like, this would fit this arid land that they were using, that would fit into that, right? It would be kind of like desert, like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could it could reach new areas that aren't right now not very usable for crops and then and they're used for photovoltaics and now we can use them for in both, a, yeah. have a dual use. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, I don't know where um, where that goes into here. If that's in the in the shrubland or in the forest land or if that's in the barren land, um, that is not accounted for in the habitable land. Um, uh, I don't know, but it could it could open up more lands that we can use. But definitely we can um, use like have a dual use uh, of, of power and um, and crop production. Uh, yeah, mm. so. That is that is my paper. As I said, like you can find the link to the Twitter thread with uh, several of the figures and good explanations by the author um, in the show notes, but also a link to the full paper. <laughs> Do you have, don't have anything to add. That's good. Sorry, I I, I um, got distracted by something for the, a second there. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> favorite plant yeah so what i got distracted by was um thinking about what we're going to say for this section <laughs> i'm very tired my head is working very slowly yeah. um yeah so last weekend yoram and i were interviewed by career conversations aka stephanie ginster um so career conversations is basically a podcast but she also like works on social media different channels on twitter and instagram to basically discuss careers and especially alternative careers in the context of academia. So she herself is a PhD student. She's not a plant PhD student, as you'll see later on um, in the show. Um, but she's working on um, skin cancer um, in Switzerland. And she interviews a whole lot of people who are doing very different things, who are scientists but have now moved to do journalism or yeah some very successful people to try and find out what what their secrets are and asking different pe people different questions based on what they're doing now so she interviewed Yoram and I last week um well actually we were interviewed a few weeks ago but it was released um late last week yeah. um and she was asking us basically how we started plants and pipettes what we saw were some of the benefits of plants and pipettes 
for us and our career, but also what some of the risks of doing plants and pipettes were. And then she asked us a lot about our like collaboration, our partnership and how we kind of decided to work together and why our partnership works, or at least so far it works. <laughs> um, how I managed to not kill Yoram week after week when he makes terrible jokes, all those beautiful things. Um, so it's a lot about self-defense actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's like one stage where there was like this like, and just like us hitting each other and yeah, yeah it was it was like therapy for us yeah. um, no we were very polite and charming and um, wise and my father gave an early review and he said that Yoram <laughs> looks like a character from Monty Python and I look deranged so thank you father your words of wisdom stay with me always um, oh my goodness um, I think your one was a little bit more flattering like my dad yeah, likes depends, depends on my who dad from Monty Python. Like, my dad which loves Monty Python in fairness. Like he really Still, like there's some like very ill looking characters in there <laughs> that I might not want to be compared to. But yeah. There's a man who speaks like this <laughs> and he's the most boring man in the world. That's I don't think you're that one. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, we actually had a professor back home who was like he spoke like this. I would listen um in my old university. We had I'm not gonna name him obviously, but we had <laughs> eye lectures, so they would had they had to record all of the lectures so students who couldn't make it to the lecture for work or for like other clashes in their their schedule could listen they could watch videos of the powerpoint and listen to the voices and i would always listen to hit on like one and a half time or double time just because it was like it was so slow <laughs> anyway back to the subject um we got interviewed um by career conversations aka stephanie ginster and that was published last week so if you want to hear about why we do what we do why it works for us why Yoram is in charge of technical stuff, blah, blah, blah. You can go and check out her podcast. And she's got some really other um, cool ones on her channel as well. So I particularly liked one with uh, Daniela. I forget his last name, but um, he is kind of a journalist and he was talking about the importance of always questioning why you're doing your career. And, and it's something where for me, sometimes I am encounter academics who are like, well, yes, like I was always going to be a professor. Of course I am. Do, do you not? Did you not think of this? And it's, it's kind of intimidating. They kind of imply that if you didn't have exactly the same trajectories as they do, then you're not as pure and you yeah, don't deserve worthy. it as much. And in reality, a lot of the time they had such a pure trajectory is because of their privilege. So, I mean, yep. they were raised by academics. I mean, which is ex exactly my case in honesty, but um, Not it's mine. like, yeah, Working class. <laughs> like exactly for me, I was raised by two academics. My parents both work in the university system. They always told my sister and I, when you go to university, not if you go to university, it was very implied. So me getting to university was like 5% me and 95% my privilege of my upbringing, right? And I see that a lot in um, in academia where there's people who have had this quite straight path, I would say, um, and they're a little bit critical of other people. And if you even show that you're interested in other things or thinking about other things, they can be quite critical, I would say. Yeah. Anyway, I really liked this talk and he was saying, well, you should always be questioning because if you're not questioning, then firstly, you have no imagination basically. And secondly, I mean... You should do what you do because you love it, not just because that's what you dreamed of when you were four. Yeah. When I was four, I wanted to be an artist or a ballerina or something, like one of the things I'm, I'm absolutely terrible about. And yep. yeah, I like that. Anyway, go and check out her channel. She's on Instagram. She's on um, Twitter. Yeah. Um, she also has careerconversations.org, I believe. Let me just double check that. Yeah, and you can listen to the podcast in your podcast app by just looking for the Career for Conversation podcast. Um, but you can also watch it on YouTube if you... If you want to see us look deranged or me look specifically deranged and yeah. 
But I think it's a 45-minute uh, conversation. I think it's best enjoyed uh, in a podcast app because, yeah, uh, you're a real diehard fan if you want to sit 45 <laughs> minutes and look at our mugs. We don't do anything. And actually, we look very stupid because we have our head, um, our podcasting headphones on and we, we look a bit silly. We look yeah. like we think that we're going to be like... I think we look like two airplane, airplane pilots. <laughs> it's just yeah. us in the cockpit. I think I look like an airplane pilot and you look like Britney Spears about to sing Toxic at the VMAs in like 1998 but or something. But to be fair, that's the look I go for every day when I put on my makeup. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Um, okay, so on top of that, when she was interviewing us... <laughs> Sorry, I made noise. <laughs> God, Jesus, draw like an adult. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, we now have, like, Yoram is, is very eco-friendly and he's using these glass straws. But if you can hear a lot of clinking during the episode, that's just, like, me trying to get a sip of water or a sip <laughs> of my G&T. It's chaos. Um, <laughs> okay. So, on top of her interviewing us, I asked if she could tell us what her favorite plant is, just so that I wouldn't have to do my homework and find my own favorite plant. I didn't really do that very well. I was like, hey, you should present your favorite plant. And then I just refused apparently to explain to her what I meant by that and went about my business. So there's a little bit of chaos at the start, but here, take a listen and see what you think. Um, so today for the favorite plant, we have a special guest uh, today. We're doing a little bit different. So hello, special guest. Maybe you want to introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Stephanie. I do also a podcast that is called Career Conversations, and it is a career uh, project for scientists. And the reason why I started to do this is because I saw so many scientists that are super frustrated with their career and with their career prospects, and there are lots of depressions and anxiety and so on around scientists about their career future. And this is where I wanted to start to do a project that will, on the one hand, inspire people to use their time in the most valuable way, and on the other hand, also to give some actionable advice on how to actually do this. And in order to do that, I usually interview high achievers in science, and I we just recorded a <laughs> podcast episode together, and I try to extract Wait. people's success mindsets. We're looking um, very smug here right now. Yeah, because ooh, ooh, ooh. now I will totally use the, the title of overachiever in science. High achiever, you're not even listening properly. <laughs> Yeah, well, this used to be the tagline, actually, career conversations, triumphs and struggles of high achievers. But now I changed this to (laughs) PhD students ask, experts answer. Yeah, I I can also recommend the podcast. I've listened to a few episodes. I really like the one with Daniela, and I forget his last name, but um, he had this really really interesting um, career, like he's doing like newspaper stuff. And for me, like he made, he raised this point of that you should always... um, question what you're doing and question why you're doing it so this idea that hey it's okay to be wondering should I stay in academia or should I be doing this this is actually part of like being happy and being content and and finding your purpose is that you should be always questioning if if what you're doing now is your purpose so I can really recommend that episode to our listeners to go and um, hear some information from him it's super cool yeah yeah Actually, this is also what I said when I applied for my job, because I was super uncertain whether I wanted to stay in science. Now I, was, now I am a little bit more certain. <laughs> or, well, I, I'm certain at least about my PhD. But to my boss, I also said, well, I had this whole thing where I was uncertain whether I wanted to stay. And then I went through this whole journey of uh, questioning, is this really right for me? And now I can say with certainty that I want to do this PhD. And this is what distinguishes me from most other people. They are only doing a PhD because this is the normal thing to do. Mm-hmm. Just staying on the path. And I have to say, like, that question, I just had some some interviews last week, and that question comes up all the time. Like, where do you see yourself in five years? Like, do you want to be a professor? And 
I mean, if nothing else, you need to be able to ask yourself this question so you can give an answer in interview kind of situations. But like generally to make sure your life is running in the right direction, you should be yeah. always asking yourself yeah. this question, I think. Yeah. So um, did you bring a favorite plant for us? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know the answer to this, I'm which is yes. But So what is your favorite plant? <laughs> I should say no. This would really give a different turn to this I, whole intro. I would. <laughs> this is like dead air for five minutes, which is again not uncommon for our podcast. Yeah, we just say, like, okay, let's uh, let's wait. We still have five minutes on the clock before we can. Do, we could go, just like go start go throwing plants. Like, so do you like this plant? Do you like this plant? Do you like this plant? What about this one? Like, <laughs> so no. What is your favorite plant? My favorite plant is actually the tulip because I find it is like the friendliest flower ever. It reminds me of spring, and it's just. Yeah. Very beautiful. It is it is a very, very beautiful flower. Um yeah, I just try like the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about tulips is like this tulip crisis in the Netherlands, which was one of the first sort of like bubbles that a burst. speculation. It was yeah. the first um do you know about this? Maybe uh, you already have yes, some information. Uh, oh no, I don't have any information. <laughs> I only remember tulips are somehow associated with economy in the Netherlands. I remember it from a fictional history book I read when I was like 14 and it was called Tulip Fever, I think. And it was this idea that people were speculating on how beautiful the tulip would be from the bulb. So they would cross to um, tulip parents and they were making these amazing hybrids with like frills and colors. But of course, when they had the bulbs, they didn't know how it would turn out until the flower came. And this was the first idea of speculating, spending money for some something that didn't physically exist yet and that's yeah. where our current stock market has basically risen yeah. from and i think like i i even heard further that they like they speculated on them and then it, at one point what happened is that like they were just selling like non-existent bulbs of tulips because they're very very valuable and at one point people wanted to actually get the bulbs and by then like the the amounts were so inflated that were on the market that like that the whole market collapsed as soon as people tried to like cash in and actually get the bulbs to plant them. Um, similar to like the, the housing crisis that we had, like the big financial crisis, where at one point somebody was like, hey, let's actually check in on the things that we all like spend money on. Um, but yeah, so, but this is not really plant science-y um, about tulips. Maybe you, maybe you have some cool facts about uh, tulips that you want to share. Did I have to look up something about tulips? Only if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh no i have not a single scientific fact about you <laughs> oh that's fine that's fine we have <laughs> Ah, uh, I thought you were looking up something about tulips. <laughs> no, 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 it's completely fine. This is like my my communication. Um, <laughs> Yarn is gonna like do what we normally do. We like Wikipedia at the last minute and like find out like what we um. Yeah, yeah um, I will not just like read from uh, Wikipedia, but I know that like they they grow from bulbs, right? And so. Uh, one thing that I always wondered with like um, tulips, but also onions or or garlic, or all of like the bulby kind of things, how do you actually propagate them? Because you like you grow them from a bulb, and is then the bulb gone, or what happens? And I think what they do is they they sort of form like a sister bulb when they go, they get ready again for the next generation, and that's how you get like more bulbs from like a single plant. Otherwise, but they're also making flowers, so they're also doing something sexually. And they should be producing seeds at the end if yeah. they're not. I would guess that a lot of the tulips that we're using now are these like mixed hybrids things where they're probably not even fertile potentially yeah see now we're just speculating which is what tulips are all about in the end so i think it's like really coming in a nice uh, <laughs> circle oh my gosh 
And it turns out we know nothing scientific about chips. And I think that's one of the, the main thing as um, plant scientists is that people always ask, like, I mean, I love house plants, but people always come up and say, oh, what plant is this? What, like, what is this? How can I fix this? And I'm like, I'm not a botanist and I'm not like a, a gardener. I'm, I know a rhabdopsis and I know tobacco. Like this is, this can sometimes be um, my limit. Um. Oh, yeah, I, I think I know something that is not really scientific, but this is like really cool, which is that the, uh, how did you call those? In German, we would call it the onion, but it's not really yeah, how you the call bulb. it. Like yeah. the, the bulb, yeah. I think onion so, is pretty <laughs> accurate though. Germany wins there. Yeah. Yeah, that the bulb has so much energy that you can just put it into wax and then there can still a plant growing out of it. And I bought those once and I thought this is so cool and I was so impressed by it that the tulip already has all the energy that it needs just in the bulb. Yeah, so this is also a cool fact that um, different um, plant seeds or bulbs or depending on what it is, is, they have these different ways of being dormant. And this is like when they're just resting and waiting to come out of the ground. Um, and some seeds, they need to have water for this to happen. And other seeds, they just need to be warm. So um, with tulips and with many other of the similar kind of bulbs, they need to be warm, but specifically they need to have cold before they're warm. So if you get tulip bulbs, one of the things you can do is put them in the fridge for a while if you're not living in a cold country. And then when they come out of the fridge, they'll, the bulbs sense that the, they've had this change and that like spring has come as far as they can tell. And that's what stimulates them um, to germinate. But the warmth is not enough. You need to have like first cold and then, then the good times. So I could have tulips all year long if I wanted to. I think they're quite... This I'm not sure, actually. I think they're quite delicate in a growth condition. So you can't grow them. Like, they won't propagate or grow uh, properly in winter when it's cold outside. But if you have, like, greenhouses and so on, you could propagate them all year long. But it would just cost a lot of energy yeah, to I've heat them and, and keep them happy. But I think that's, like... Of, on a ecological point of view, I think this is a big uh, criticism of this, like... Uh, industry of producing flowers because um, the the growing of them but also the shipment and everything requires a lot of energy to control the conditions where they're growing in um, and so the other thing is some some plants also need not just the right conditions to germinate but then they need a second um, kind of stimulation to set flowers um, so they yeah. might need again something cold or they might need something warm or, or a certain light regime like uh, mm -hmm. like a short day where you, or a long day depending on when during the year they would usually germ uh, set flowers or, or produce seeds. And this is basically evolved from the fact that these species originally come from places where they have to be really careful about the seasons so um, they want to make sure that they flower and set seeds before winter and if they they do it at the wrong time then they're going to be flowering during winter there's no bugs around all the bugs have died from winter and they don't make seeds so they basically waste <laughs> all that energy in in making um flowers and they don't like the seed is usually the kind of the safest um thing that can survive like the harshest conditions so they 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 have these mm -hmm. kind of predetermined signals yeah and in australia we're just talking about this um recently with some of my friends in australia we have a lot of plants which actually will only flower if they have um smoke And it's because Australia is, as a country, very, very flammable. We have a lot of plants which just like, I mean, everything is dried. Our plants are also dry. They're not really green. They're kind of brownish green. And they're filled with these like essential oils. So, you know, like eucalyptus oil, like this comes from gum trees, but it's, it's an oil. It just, it will burst into flames. So our bush is always, yeah, it's, there's always fire. Oh, wow. 
but we have like a lot of adaptations where some plants are really good with dealing with um, fire and just kind of like hunkering down and, and, and not dying but others of them actually they need the smoke signals now so there's a certain metabolite that's found um, in smoke that comes from bushfires and only when they have that metabolite from the smoke they actually start to flower so this is like giving them the best chance of, of living because once the fire has already like wrecked havoc there's, there's less chance that a fire will come immediately because basically everything that is burnable has already burned so yeah, yeah. and also there's less oh, competition from other plants around yeah like it's like a fresh clean slate to grow mm-hmm. on i just like i have a, one last fact from on tulips um that i just researched um <laughs> Because I quite like that there's, there's like um, the, the main color of them of the the flowers is given by uh, anthocyanins um, and uh, a base color that uh, um, that's coming from a different pigment. Um, the anthocyanin. It's not a sound in German. Yeah, it's a very difficult word for, for a German-speaking person. Um, so these are usually like pigments or dyes um, found very often they often have uh, a certain color to them and the one that is very uh, common in tulips is called tulipanin um, which is a very like um, well thought out name and it's a it's <laughs> what i like more about it is it's like a derivative uh, like a biochemical change made from a thing is called delphinidine so like a, from a dolphin <laughs> So a compound so, named after a dolphin slightly changed is a compound na- named after so tulips. I'm guessing a delphidium is like a, a purpley blue color. It must be, right? Like if it's dolphin yeah. colored and then it becomes like tulip colored, which Although is what like, yellow is. I mean, tulips come in different colors. Um, so like these uh, tulipanines, they can come in, like there's an A and a B f- form. Um, they're actually quite toxic and they can cause allergies. So like an co- occupational hazard for people uh, working as florists uh, that cut a lot of uh, tulips is that they get this like anthocyanin on their skin and it co- uh, causes a dermatitis um, which is not very nice but yeah so there is a base color from a pigment and then these anthocyanins on top um, the, the the exact identity of them and the mixture of them defines what the color of the tulip will be essentially in the end um, so you have like this two-part system that defines the the color of them that was my, my oh, fact about tulips. We're sorry we kind of um, sprung out on you. So we just did a recording um, now for Career Conversations. You guys should go and check that out. Um, yeah. But then we were kind of like, hey, now it's time to do a favorite plant. Like, let's make this happen. So we know, <laughs> sorry. Um, but where can people reach your podcast or, or reach you? So people can reach me first on my website uh, at www.career-conversations.org or also on LinkedIn as Career Conversations, uh, on Instagram as career underscore conversations. And now I'm starting also a YouTube channel, which is also called Career Conversations. Great. So... uh, (laughs) We'll put all of those in the show notes as well. So anybody who's listening can also go and check that out. Yeah, exactly. So, um, thank you very much. There was it was a pleasure talking yeah, to you're you. Welcome. Yeah, and we had yeah, a really it nice, was great. We had a, a nice long chat over on her podcast. So, you all of our followers go and listen to her podcast and yes. listen to people who are wiser than us say many, many other wise things on different episodes of the podcast of Career Conversations. Yes, and if you want yes. to, if you want to know how like it looks behind the scenes, like we talked a lot about how we like set up this entire project, something that we don't talk too much about on our own podcast. So definitely, if you're interested in how we started all of this and why we're doing this, go over to Career Conversations and listen to this episode. 
Thank you, Stephanie, um, for bringing a fair plant. Um, it was really exciting to talk to you. Thank you for um, yeah, being a part of our show. And all you listeners, uh, check out her podcast. Um, it's really cool. So yeah. with that, we move uh, to our next segment. Diversity in the plants. Science. And what? <laughs> What just happened? I made a jingle. We didn't have a jingle for this for forever. And uh, for diversity in plant science, um, and I just, yeah, uh, for that, I just Googled like rap lyrics that featured diversity, plant, and science, which was surprisingly hard to find spots there. And then just like cut it out. So now are we going to get sued by Britney Spears and also by whoever's talking about diversity thing? Um, no. Do you get 30 seconds for free? Isn't that the rule? It's very different. Like in the US, it wouldn't be absolutely no problem. In Germany, I don't know. In Germany, they take you to prison just for like looking at a song. Yeah. Game will come and get you. Yeah. Although nothing is blocked. So when I first came to Germany, like what, almost seven years ago now, every time you clicked on like a YouTube thing, even if it was like the official YouTube channel of Katy Perry, the the German government basically, there's a... there's no, a, no, the gov- It's not the government. It's an um, regulation of... Advertising? No, no. The GEMA is a system that collects the money from anyone who plays music in public. And then you have to give money to GEMA and GEMA gives the money to the artists. That's the idea. So yeah, that you, but you're an artist registered with GEMA and GEMA makes sure that they collect the money from all the radio stations and CD sales and TV stations and all of this. And when it came to YouTube, they had no agreement they didn't have an agreement system. with YouTube, so they would just they would block even the the artist's own channels. Like yeah. they would like you couldn't watch a I don't know a Katy Perry song or a like, Britney Spears song because it would be blocked because yeah. there was no official licensing for Gamer. Yeah, Gamer wanted to have like a, a high amount of money for every thousand like clicks, and would, YouTube yeah, didn't want to pay that money. Yeah, they were basically like just going on strike against the artist which is also not super fair right I mean okay I mean, you, yeah, we can discuss yeah, who's more evil game or YouTube but yeah, like it's very complicated but d- d- yeah Google did definitely some over blocking sort of to put pressure on Gamer because everybody hated Gamer and Gamer so is easy a problematic it's a very problematic institution um, uh, but yeah so but it seems to have t- it's kind of less of a problem now it seems to have gone they away they just basically. found an agreement pretty much like they yeah. found so, like they met somewhere in the middle and they're paying money now to Gamer and Gamer is happy now and so there's no blocking I don't understand why Gamer should get any money like the artists should get money why should Gamer get anything Gamer is representing the artists it's not really though is it it is it's not It's not representing like no you register as an artist you register with Gamer you make a contract with them that they represent you and then you get every month or every quarter you get money from Gamer but back. if the artist doesn't want to be involved in that then, then gamer still this gamer still blocks stuff yeah there's this is a big problem in germany that um it is just assumed when you don't you basically have to buy into gamer like no you don't have to buy into gamer but you have to prove that when you play music that it's not in the gamer so, so the assumption friend, is like everything is in the gamer and you have to prove that it's not in case it is yeah but they don't let you prove it so my friend had like a, a local band he was from new zealand he had a local band um who let them use some some music for some stupid video they made and they, they like knew the band and even when the band said it's fine for them to use the music game was like oh we don't acknowledge this is you know it's not in german or some like they yeah. they make it difficult yeah absolutely that's why i'm saying it's a very problematic institution because like all of like 
um, Creative Commons music and like uh, open licenses and all of that is un- incompatible with the way the Gema system is set up because it's been set up like, like decades ago. They love capitalism. Like they want everything. Like they but want also anything they to are be very, like living in the past. Like they still think in terms of like wait, CD there's, sales. Wait, there's like a German bureaucracy system that's living in the past. You're saying? Yeah, it comes to a surprise this to everyone. Shocking. I'm telling this. They're like, oh, la, la. this is why they're throwing me out of the country at the end of the year. <laughs> like. You've been here too long. You haven't learned to respect it. <laughs> All right, let's go on to our that diversity. That was a, a long tangent from <laughs> Blah, blah, we hate gamer, blah, blah. <laughs> like diversity in plant science. Um, today, I, I'm pre- uh, presenting uh, very briefly Margaret Clay Ferguson. She was born in 1863 and died in 1951. Um, so she lived for quite a long time. And um, she was the first female president uh, president of the Botanical Society of America. Way. Um, which is uh, pretty cool. Well and, done, Margaret. Um, yeah, so what she she worked on um, a lot of different systems, uh, including fungi, pine, and petunia. Um, uh, but her main imp- uh, her main uh, study point that's very like the the most known for is her uh, study where she um, uh, investigated plant flower colors pa- uh, patterns and how they do not follow Mendelian laws of in- inheritance. And with that, she put a lot of the groundwork there um, for like the more complicated areas of genetics that are like the Mendelian cool. rules are um, these these very simple. Like um, one gene involved and it's either dominant or recessive kind of idea. Yeah, and then you mix them and then you get like these numbers of, of offspring that are um, a mixture of the different combinations you of the You guys remember this all. You learned it in school. Yeah. There but, were Punnett squares involved. Uh, but in reality... <laughs> Obviously, it's more complicated. You have like traits that follow several genes, or um, that are like not clearly dominant or recessive, and so on and so on. And she was uh, one of the uh, people studying this. Um, and uh, she it's uh, pretty cool because uh, um, Margaret Clay Ferguson encouraged many women botanists during her time at a Wellesley College um, to uh, yeah to work there and to to do science. Um, and to work in the lab which was like back in the days like before like in at the turn of the century um yeah not common it was not the, the norm that women were allowed to like take part in natural science mm-hmm. especially in lab work and so on um so yeah that's her great cool what was her name again margaret margaret clay ferguson margaret clay ferguson perfect and now we move to the next segment this is where the fun Oh, I like this. This is where the fun begins. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I just like face planted onto my microphone. I like that a lot. That's really cute. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you spent too much time making gum jingles this Look, last there, week. There was a, yeah, there was a night with a couple of beers involved um, <laughs> and me not getting enough sleep uh, because I was making jingles, but I had fun. Sometimes my phone just like rings at like one in the morning and it's like... <laughs> this thing Tegan Tegan look at my thing Tegan Tegan I did this thing look look <laughs> well done Yarm. it's pretty cool actually <laughs> so do you have something fun I have a kind of a discussion first it's less fun and it's more important I would say so <laughs> the other day on Twitter I saw something <laughs> from um, Adriana she's um, at fungi underscore lover and she said I worked on this piece and gave a link to it 
And the basic tag for the tweet says, we believe that it's time to stop colonization in ecology. Please read it and share it. So um, the piece is a kind of short article they wrote for Science Connected magazine. Mm-hmm. It's her and Susanna Zianran I hope that's how you pronounce it. So Adriana Romero Oliveras and Susanna. And they basically wrote this idea that since times of yore, we've had this kind of separation between the global north. So it's basically Europe and North America and the global south. And there's been really this kind of almost yeah it's basically colonialism this idea that people from the north they have a lot of money and they just come into the south and they take resources and they yeah they do it and it's still happening with with research so it's this idea of like if there is something interesting happening in mexico or in chile or somewhere or like yeah it's not necessarily it's not the best thing that somebody just a european scientist from germany is the one who comes in and gets to do that research just because they're the ones who have the money because often they ignore the locals they shut them out because the locals don't have access to money they also even more problematic they ignore the traditional landholders so this can be a a, a bigger problem even beyond like the the country borders it can be like a a kind of um Mm. people borders involved um and I mean, historically, it's also involved people from the global north then taking the knowledge and basically commercializing it. So finding a substance that grew in X place and then making drugs out of it and basically claiming the natural resources of a different country. And yeah. this is simply not okay. Um, yeah, it's we, colonialism. We, we tend to glorify this often, right? There are these stories of, oh, they went into the Amazon forest and they discovered this like weird frog and in, like one of its compounds has anti-cancer properties. And now it's a drug you can buy. And, and often they didn't discover it. They got that lo- knowledge from local people who have been there for many years and they know about this thing. And then somebody's just come in and has more money and can can yeah. therefore take it and use it. And yeah, so they talk in their paper about a recent publication which came out where there was some discussion. I think it was about mu- mushrooms. And they said it was written by scientists from the US and Europe. So they didn't seem to be anybody who was actually from the, the location. It was, they were from Mexico. They were found. And it seems also, it seems unclear if the scientists even had they didn't have any collaborations with local scientists and it didn't seem even clear that they had presented any like government permits for exporting the specimens they basically took some mushroom specimens from local reserves which also had um some uh kind of connection with the mayan people originally so there was something like this is involved as well and this was then published and saying this is still happening a lot in science that we have this kind of scientific colonialism and and it should be stopped basically and also i mean Apart from the fact that it's it's morally kind of gross, it's also you're not getting the most, like, the knowledge is already there. You can't get that knowledge without interacting with the people who, who have that knowledge. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous and disgusting to be discovering things. I'm putting this in little inverted brackets that, like, are, are already mm. discovered, right? So in the kind of um, very similar theme... Um, Yale Environment 360 also released a pay, a, um, a short article, um, journalistic article a few days back. I can't see the date. Oh, actually, it was um, at the end of July. And it was discussing a Mexico um, strain of maize, so of corn, which somehow has an ability to fix nitrogen. So it's basically self-fertilizing is how they're selling it. But now they're discussing like, well... 
who owns this? Because if this has been found in Mexico, is it the right of the US to then replicate this? If it was a drug and it was like made by a company, they would have the the copyright. You would have like this 10 year embargo. Like they're kind of discussing like how does it work and, and what are the the yeah. rights? So I think it's something that we still haven't really worked out. And I mean, we sort of have it worked out, but as industrial nations, we tend to ignore this. There's this thing called the Nagoya Protocol mm-hmm. uh, from 2010 um, that deals with exactly that. Uh, the idea is that there, there has to be a financial recompensation, at least, for the countries uh, that uh, whose genetic diversity is used by other mm-hmm. players, uh, usually like other research institutions or companies. Um, uh, it was... Uh, um, created in 2010 so the full name is the Nagoya Protocol on Access to Genetic Resources and the Fair and Equitable cha- Sharing of Benefits Arising from Their Utilization mm-hmm. um, but like although it has like high goals there are some things that are unclear first of all like how is it in actuality um, working like do Uh, individual companies pay to the country will there be like a general pool where all of the companies who use genetic resources pay Mm. into and then the countries can get money from that pool all of these things are still causing dispute today and some um, countries are just um, not ratifying and accepting this treaty like the US for example Mm. uh, which is a major player in in this problem they they have a lot of research uh, resources and yeah they are not taking part in this treaty and so so this the second of the two articles about the maze actually does mention the protocol and they say hey look there is this protocol there seems to be some participation from people who are now working on it um but yeah it's very unclear about how as you said how the money will go back to the community and if this this is the first part of the information and then it's developed by a company for a few years then how much does the country earn based on this and does it go yeah does it go to the government does it go to scientists does it go to the the indigenous people of that like who who owns that money and who has the right and i think this is something which is not at all clear at the moment and at the same time it's also complicated in terms of um that genetic diversity uh, although like it might be first found in a certain space, it doesn't mean that this is exclusive to that space. So that mm. creates a whole another set of um, like uh, of problems of interpreting these these treaties or these agreements. Like if you find it in the Amazon forests, but you can also find it like in Chile and maybe also in Africa. Like who can claim that this is their genetic mm. genetic resource that has to be financially compensated for? Um, so. These things are they they are complicated, but we're definitely definitely uh, shortcoming on um, yeah giving back to the countries that we exploited historically and are still scientifically exploiting today by taking um, biomaterials from there, by taking genetic uh, information from there, and building on uh, like our research, our products on them. Yeah, and just to wrap it up in a kind of positive note, the maze seems kind of cool. It's a variety called Oloton, which I guess is uh, maybe the local name. And it has these kind of aerial roots. They're like bright red and they make this mucus-like gel. I'm just showing your own, but we can put a link to the article. And apparently there's something in there. I guess it's a symbiosis, but there's it says it can fix um, nitrogen. So I guess it oh, has cool. some sort of bacterial symbiosis happening in this slime. And it's basically just like, it's drooling. It's like a baby just yeah. drooling. It looks a little bit like little fangs, actually. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, I brought today... Um, a fact about something that I also discovered uh, from from Twitter, uh, which is the Great Green Wall of Africa. Um, it's a pretty big project, so I'm surprised how I didn't hear from it. Which just sh- goes to show, like how blind 
I am or the people I follow are for like non-European, non-US stuff that's happening in the world mm -hmm. because this is a major project in, in Africa. Um, the idea there is like it started as the idea of uh, having... A sort of a belt of trees growing just south of the Sahara from uh, west to east across the Af African continent to stop the desertification of uh, the areas to like in, uh, reforestate areas to make them green and have this sort of living green barrier against the extending Saharan desert mm -hmm. um, which is a big problem for these countries just south of uh, Sahara because like yeah it, it keeps expanding and reducing like destroying croplands and um, the livelihood of many people living there um, so what they're aiming for is that they want to restore about 100 million hectares of currently degraded land and sequester 250 million tons of carbon and create about 10 million jobs uh, in rural areas is what they want to go for. They already achieved, um, I think, like between 10 and 20 percent of uh, the, the reforestation that they wanted to do. But um, they sort of transformed uh, while this project was uh, going on um, to rediscover old uh, techniques of land use that were like used before sort of colonizers came there and brought like the European way mm -hmm. of doing agriculture. There were already systems in place that people, local farmers were using. Um, and they're sort of rediscovering these now and they work to great effect. Like they were able to um, reclaim a lot of land by using like these uh, ancient techniques of uh, building trenches to retain water, to like make more efficient use of rainfalls and to get uh, like from the, from the water condensation at night um, to have a more efficient use of that. Um, and with that, it, it seems to work uh, quite well. So um, they still have about 10 years to go for, for their ambitious goals, but it seems to be a, a major success story of sort of Central Africa, um, which I found quite cool. Uh, we put a link for that also mm. down in the description. It has some, some cool images there. And yeah, it's. I was just surprised how I have never heard about this before because it seems to be such a cool and massive and successful project what's is there like a publication that that's um, be they have a couple in, of uh i think they have some mentioned on their website the greatgreenwall.org uh, and i also like this because it's like we're talking about like great walls that are quite negative <laughs> like the u.s border walls and so on um and this is an absolutely positive wall like it's a wall of trees i want to see the publications i want to see the peer review of like how it's what the how it works what's happening uh yeah i i know that i read some like journalist uh, articles about it um so yeah i will put some links in the show notes so you can read up on it i can have a cat fact to end if we uh, have you got anything else or i have for so the, many fun facts you have week. so many fun facts do you want to save some for next week or do you want to maybe um, one or two more still uh, yeah, I, I think I, I'll do one more. Um, and wait, where is it? I don't have very many for next week, so. <laughs> okay. Um, do I have something that's actually fun? Uh, yeah, I have something. Yeah, I have something very short that we can do now. Yeah. And do you know what I have for that? A jingle. How? CRISPR News. News. News.
It's just a no short, <laughs> short segment for uh, because CRISPR is like this emerging technology now, and now it's emerged, man. It's emerged, but it's like coming to application now. It's an emerging application, and in in Japan, uh, uh, a team of scientists has made a rain-resistant re wheat variety um, with CRISPR Cas9. Oh, what now? Rain-resistant. Rain-resistant, so what? high humidity, um, ah. because like at they the rot. end of the growing season, they have to dry out, uh, mm -hmm. and otherwise they are very prone to get like fungal rot and so on okay. and apparently um, they made a, a wheat variety that is more resistant to high humidity um, and they just took a year to develop this variety and they said in conventional breeding this would have taken over 10 years to get the same result um, so that's cool. just that alrighty cat fact cat fact it's too long. <laughs> it has a lot of meowing cats. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, I found a very stupid cat fact, <laughs> which is man spends £24,000 to clone his cat after struggling to come to terms with the loss. So honestly, I googled like cat facts and I came up with this on the independent, which I think I'm not, not super convinced. Um and it starts with a line they say cats have nine lives this one it seems has ten which <laughs> and it's basically um Huang Yu, a Chinese man, basically cloned his cat, whose name is Garlic. It's a British short hair called Garlic, which is super cute. Because um apparently the <laughs> the cat died suddenly. Sorry, it's not funny. But what's funny is you're a terrible person, Deegan. <laughs> the cat died suddenly and he couldn't do that. No, what's funny is the fact that the line says, the new version was born <laughs> impatient. Garlic version 2.0. Yeah, so literally... um, Did they actually genetically improve it? Did they take out like some... I don't think they improved it. It's like, and it says, similarity between the two cats is more than 90%, but like similarity between a cat and a monkey is more than 90% if we're talking about like genes. I think you can take any two cats and say like yeah they're 90% similar. I think the company just took like the um <laughs> the money the and it just looked like for, <laughs> for, a, for a cat that looks looked, similar. Uh, this is yours absolutely. <laughs> yeah um so apparently cloning of pets is illegal in most countries but it's actually legal in China and it's also illegal in the US. Apparently Barbara Streisand famously cloned her dog which I didn't know about. Okay. Um, and they cloned the first cloned cat was called C and it was born in 2001 now honestly I read this and I didn't actually believe it was true but this was like a few days ago it came on the independent and I just googled it again now and it popped up on I fucking love science um, two days ago so it must be and legit. I think it's more legit when it's on IFL science um, and they actually have a little few more scientific um, details about what's happening um, nearly a year of effort science were able to transfer an embryo to a surrogate cat but at the same time, they also said the new cat was born seven months after the old one died. So I don't really understand how it died. There was one year. There was another 66 days or like two and a half months for um, developing. They what must have gestating. started cloning before it I was think dead. He, yeah, did he start cloning? I don't know. It doesn't sound super... Yeah. Again, I go with the version of they just got another cat and we're like 90% similar. Look. <laughs> they said they observed it for almost a month and report that it, like... <laughs> Scientists say they observed it for almost a month and it doesn't look any different from a normal cat. But, like, I can just imagine, like, if that was my job, I just had to watch a kitten for a month, I would be so happy. Like, if <laughs> like I was in a white coat with, like, clipboard, like, yes, it plays and, like, it shits that's, in the box. That's the 27,000 pounds. It's like, it's like 2,000 for, like, the fees. Like, 
a hundred bucks to buy a new cat and then like the rest is just to pay a scientist to like watch the cat for a month I think it's great um it's very sad that he lost his cat I find it creepy that he cloned his cat I don't think that's yeah that's bizarre no offense sir I'm sorry for your loss but there's counseling now and also like it really scares me the idea that humans would be cloned just like creeps me out because there's just going to be like white men just like cloning themselves over and over again eventually happen right it it will not happen (laughs) I refuse um, and also there were this in IFL science, they mentioned somebody cloning a woolly mammoth, which I've read about before on this, yeah. um, Pliocene park. I think I mentioned it a few episodes ago. It's super cool. Anyway, that was my cat fact. Cats has been cloned. Now this a very good fact about cats or. I hate you. <laughs> and rightfully so. Uh, uh, it's time to go. <laughs> follow us on all of the social media. <laughs> oh, if you follow on Twitter, you'll hear bullshit memes from Yoram. If you follow on Facebook or Instagram at Plants and Pipettes, you'll hear from me. I'm much more pleasant. I don't make so many puns. Um, yes, uh, you can read more about plant science on our blog, plantsandpipettes.com, where we uh, every week um, publish new articles about uh, the amazing world of plant biology. Please always um, rate and subscribe to our podcast, but also leave comments, give us suggestions, whatever you want. They can even be negative suggestions as long as they're not too mean, um, because all of this helps us. You know how the algorithms work. Yeah. And we, when you're done listening to the back catalogue of over 20 episodes by now of our podcast, go over to the Career Conversation podcast and listen some more. Yeah. Um, it's really good. And thank you again, Stephanie, for joining us today, yeah. especially since we put you on the spot there. <laughs> yeah. And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Goodbye. Bye. This is the part where the thing is playing. Meow, 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 meow. <laughs> meow, meow. <laughs> A taste on your lips. Okay, off you go. Okay. <laughs> so that was our... Meow, 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 meow. So that was... Um, do you think Britney Spears likes cats or dogs? Because there's like less chance of her suing us if she likes cats. <laughs> you know, the more you talk about this, the less likely it is that I will cut this out. <laughs> I don't think it should be cut. I think it's beautiful. Like, I think every time I'm meowing, it should be kept in just like on principle. Okay, so...